0: All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. So we are in Matthew uh, chapter 22. And I might turn myself down. Am good? We'll If mama says I'm good, then I'm good. <laughs> All right. So you'll recall that over these past... Um, a few chapters, um, we have seen Jesus leave uh, the region of Galilee, move to Jerusalem, and uh, instead of just interacting with the various crowds who were generally quite favorable toward him, now he's starting to interact with uh, a lot of the uh, religious elite. uh, We've seen several interactions with the Pharisees, and that's going to uh, continue uh, uh, in our passages today. And um, in, in every situation... course, we know how this all turns out. In every situation, um, Jesus has certainly um, accounted himself um, extremely well, uh, much to the surprise and uh, perhaps disappointment of the the leadership there. So we'll jump on in to uh, chapter 22, beginning with uh, verse 1. It says, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Uh, parables of course uh, these are not actual accounts but these are uh, stories that um, are trying to teach a truth uh, sometimes more than one truth and um, as those of you creative types uh, sometimes you know that it's easier to convey a a truth through um, sometimes a story or a poem or a piece of music or a a painting Uh, sometimes easier than you can um, in a yeah, an actual account. Uh, so, so Jesus is using parables, and he says, in verse two, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, "Tell those who are invited, see, I, I've prepared my dinner." My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off and one to his farm and another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. He said to servants, the wedding feast is ready, but... Those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. We'll pause there. Uh, There are a couple of accounts of wedding feasts uh, in uh, the Gospels. Uh, Luke has one that has some similarities, but it also has some differences and the uh, you can run into trouble if you try to consider that they're both the same story they may be the same setup um, but uh, both of these uh, stories are kind of picking up on the concept uh, back in in scripture there are places in Isaiah for example where uh, God's uh, described as setting a feast for um, uh, his people and so uh, it's a similar setup but they're not the same story, so um, it, you have to force some things if you if you think that they are. But it's pretty easy to see who the big characters are, and, and this would not have been lost on the people that were uh, hearing this. Um, you have the king giving a wedding feast for his son. So the king would be God, and they would have picked up on that. And they probably also would have picked on up on the fact that the son might have been the Messiah— it's hard to know exactly where they were on this at this point but certainly that's Jesus's angle a wedding feast for his son and who is the bride for the son the church those people that that are are being prepared uh for uh Jesus um so here we have this wedding feast and there are people that are invited there's an invitation list of, you know, who do you want to come to this party? And so the servants go out and talk with the people that are on the list. And no takers. No takers. It says, you know, they, they wouldn't come. Well, the king says, well, you know, maybe those servants weren't as persuasive. Maybe, maybe I just need to try again. And so he sends second set of servants, and says, look, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. You would think that second call might have made a difference. Now, I, I, may, I may have told this story, I don't, I don't recall, but when you are at um, uh, atrium and health, uh, back then it was Carolina's health care. When you get 20 years, they have all the people who've been um, uh, with the organization um, 20 years, 25 years, 30, 35, and so on. Um, they have a big party once a year. A kind of a recognition uh, dinner. And so when I hit my 20 years, uh, I got the invitation, hey, you know, it's a, you know, it was kind of a dress-up thing. It was at a at a hotel um, where there was going to be a banquet, and you would, you know, meet all the bosses and you know shake their hand, and it was kind of a receiving line sort of thing. And it was it was a it was a big deal. It was on a Monday, and I had given some thought to going, but I, I just knew it wasn't going to work out. My money was crammed full. It was just, you know, it was going to. By the time I finished up and got everything at the office, and then to drive to Charlotte it just wasn't going to work. And so early that morning, uh, I wrote, um, the, the invitation was coming from Michael Tarwater, who at that time was the CEO of Atrium Health. Now at that time we had like around 45,000 employees, but I wrote him and I said, Mr. Tarwater, you know, I know you're having this event today. And, uh, i'm really grateful you know i've i've had a good 20 years here and i've really enjoyed it i appreciate what you do for us Uh, but regretfully i'm not going to be able to come Um, it's 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 just going to be a really busy day i'm on call and uh, i just i'm not going to be able to make it by the time i finish and and try to get up there because we're not exactly close to downtown in our you know we're on the fringes of of uh, atrium health's uh, footprint and that was that was it. And um, I went on my merry way. Well, there was a knock on my door around 10 o'clock that morning, and the nurse asked me to step out, and I said, you know, what's up? And usually they don't interrupt me unless another doctor's calling about some emergency room or something. And they said, Mr. Tarwater's on the phone. <laughs> there you go. I said, okay, so I made my apologies to the person I was seeing. I stepped out and I said, hello. And said, so, hi, uh, this is Mike. And um, you know, I got your, got your note, greatly appreciate that. He said, but um, Bert, I, I really want you to come. I really want you to come. It's a really nice night, you know, bring your wife. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, it's, he, he said, look, I know you'll be running late. I'll have my personal secretary wait for you at the door and she will escort you to your spot. You won't have to hunt for a seat. It'll just be there for you. Well, what do you think I did? You win. You win. I called Meredith. I said, we're going to Charlotte tonight. <laughs> and, and sure enough, everything happened just like the gal was there looking for me, and uh, she took us to our table, um, got us seated next to some people that we happened to know. And... Um, there was a break, like an intermission. Mr. Tarwater came by the table and said hi. Um, and it was, it was just really nice. So I thought about that when I was reading this. Now here's not just someone throwing a party, but the king was throwing a party. And the king comes and asks you, do you want to come? And you say, no. And then the king comes and asks again, do you want to come? Who doesn't come? But these people didn't come. So are we really surprised in verse 7 that the king gets angry? He sent his troops and wiped them out, destroyed the murders, and burned their city but he wasn't done, he said, you know there's still going to be a wedding and there's still going to be a feast and I still need some people to help celebrate, and so he tells the servants go to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast, as many as you can find gather all whom they found interesting, both bad and good Now this would have been interesting to the Pharisees hearing this because not only are they aware that they were part of that original chosen, they would have assumed from this heavenly king they would have been on the invitation list. But now we see that the king is reaching out to whoever, whether they were even good or not. Not the twist in the story they were probably expecting. The wedding hall was filled with guests. And now it kind of turns personal. We talked about this big group. Now it's personal. Verse 11, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? Now apparently the story was, you know, These people were not planning to come. They were gathered up and brought in. Well, apparently what happened was the host provided a change of clothes for these guests. So everybody there who has been invited, who wasn't originally planning to going to a wedding that night, they came, they were provided wedding garden, but here's someone who does have his wedding garden. It says, and he was speechless. In other words, he was offered to be part of thing, but didn't want to commit, didn't want to take that garment, didn't want to honor the king. I mean, why do you put on the garment? You want, to, you want to honor your host. So this was not just a casual omission. This is an affront to the king. And he doesn't even try to make an excuse. Verse 13, it says, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him, hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But many are called, but few are chosen. So there is this element of a broad appeal, but then there's also this kind of personal connection that that some people are gonna are gonna follow through, and, and some people are not. Interestingly, they just heard this, the Pharisees. And you can imagine when he finishes the story, there would have been, you know, some talking, you know, some murmuring. What does he mean? Is he talking to us? What does that mean? Who was it that made it to the wedding? They knew he was not easy to trap, but they were not deterred. They said, "Let's try again." so in verse fifteen, we have their latest attempt it says then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. that thought occurs to me, you know what if they had entangled him with his words? Would that have really been enough to negate everything that happened but I guess this is all they're down to. You know, they couldn't dispute the many witnesses of all the miracles. Now they're just trying to, you know, I don't know. I guess they were just used to these word games, it sounds like. Anyway, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by opinions. Now, does this sound sincere? (laughs) Probably not, right? So, interesting, so you got the Pharisees, we know their story, right? They've been trying to trip Jesus up this whole time. So, who are the Herodians? So, the Herodians were basically... um, the 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 ones that were really closely tied with the Roman government. Okay. So Herod, the original Herod, um was the son of this um there was this this uh, leader down in the southern like you know you've got the northern kingdom you've got Judea and then there's this lower area, which I can't even pronounce the name of it, but it's, it's down low toward the, the lower part of the Red Sea. It's down in there. So back in like the 150 B.C. era, um, there was this family and, and this family that kind of got converted into Judaism. And some of the leaders was a really good soldier, a pretty good politician, and got really recognized by the Roman government as kind of being their man. Well, then there there was Herod, the son from that. Uh, This was Herod the Great. And then Herod had, Herod the Great, you know, was the one that um, was ruling when Jesus was a baby that sent the decree out to kill all the two-year-olds, right? His son, Herod Antipas, had several sons, but his son is... Herod Antipas is the one that is mostly in the New Testament, right? This is the one that killed John the Baptist and, you know, um, uh, married his niece or sister-in-law, or maybe she was his niece and his sister-in-law. Anyway, it gets messy after that. But anyway, this is because Herod and the Herodians, kind of descendants and and part of that, he was not looked, this whole crew was not looked on with favor, Right? They weren't like fully Jewish to begin with. There was like Jewish convert, you know, a few generations back. So you know how it is, you know, if you're not born from a certain place, it's you're never really from there, right? You're never really from there. Um, and that was, it was like this. And not only that, they were corrupt. They were participating in taxing people. Uh, they were closely aligned with the—they they were puppets, puppets of the Roman government, basically— and remember, you—you you know, Rome was an occupying force, right? They had taken over. They, you know, they had conquered this area, so surely they wouldn't have been looked on with favor. But here we are: the Pharisees have stooped to hook up with the Herodians, of all people, to try to trip them up. But they had—they each had a, each had an interest in this particular dilemma that they were going to present it says teacher we know that you are true and teach the way of god truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances tell us then interestingly all those things that they say are true about jesus actually are true about jesus but all the things that they say are not at all true about themselves it's pretty funny um tell us then is it lawful to pay taxes to caesar or not So, there's this tax thing. Now, the Pharisees abhorred, and and really pretty much all the the people of Israel abhorred the tax, right? Somebody's going to come and take over your country, and as thanks for taking over our country, we'd like to give you money. No, this was horrible, and there were lots of rebellions that happened periodically where people would, you know rebel against paying the taxes. I mean, it's kind of the Boston Tea Party thing all over again. But they say, tell us then what do you think is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now the Herodians would have been fine with that because they probably got a cut. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said why do you put me to the test you hypocrites? Now hypocrites um, we have a different connotation of, but the word basically is the, the word we use for actor. So this this buttering them up, as we would say it, of all these grateful things, they were just. He knew they were acting. He knew they were lying, so he calls them out on it. And he said, "You hypocrites!" And then he he says, "Show me the coin for the tax," and they brought him a denarius. Now, so this this means they ha- they had the coin on them, right? Now there were a lot of things wrong with the coin by Jewish law because you weren't supposed to put any image on something because that was considered making an idol. But yet here was this coin that they kept in their pocket that had Caesar's image on it. And not only that, Caesar thought himself to be what? A god, right? So, so none of this is really great that they have it on him, but out of necessity, they, I guess they did. But it says, bring me a Daenerys, Or bring me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. So then he says, and of course we know this this verse so well, it says, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, some commentators have said there was a little bit of a kind of behind the scenes thing that might have, been part of this message, because they said you could have somewhat interpreted it as saying, yeah, give back to Caesar what Caesar's, in other words, so what had Caesar done? He had taken the land by force. So you could be saying, you know, yeah, treat Caesar the way Caesar's treated you, fight force with force. So that could have felt a little revolutionary. That could have really been, he could have been called out as a rebel, which was pretty common back in the day. But he was kind of protected because of the very coin that they had given him. Because he could just claim, oh no, no, I am just talking about the coin. It says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so you know they had thought so long about this this question and not only does he answer their question to their amazement but he just puts it right back on them you know what are you going to do with caesar and what are you going to do with god and again the context is he's been pounding at them this whole time with these stories and and it's going to it's going to continue Verse 22, when they heard it, they marveled. I mean, I, I just wish I could hear what what does marvel mean? You know, they say, how did he do that? Did, I didn't see that coming. How, did, how does he do this? You know, I just, what? How are we going? We? Verse 23, the same day, the Sadducees came to him. Now can't you see this? So the Pharisees have been going at him for several days. Now they pull in the Herodians to try to get some help. So the Sadducees were also part of that Sanhedrin, that religious sect, but they did not believe the same things that the Pharisees did. So they, they had, you know, um, what they thought was more pure religion. They just believed in the first five books of the Bible. If it's not you know, this was like our version of the King Jamesers. You know, it's not King James. You know, um, if it's not in the first five books of the Bible, we ain't believing it, right? We are the pure, we the real. You know, this was the law and and this is it. Of course, they had to ignore a lot of like prophet type folks <laughs> um, to uh, to get to that position, but, but they were the Sadducees. So they've been watching all of this and they're thinking, well, you know, don't send a boy to do a man's job, you know, we we've got this. We've got this. So now the Sadducees step up. So it's the same day the Sadducees came to him and said, Oh, here's this explanation from from Matthew. They came to him and, and the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question, saying, Teacher. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. You guys know the old musical, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's cool. If If you like musicals, lots of dancing. And they all have Bible names. Uh, if a man dies having no children okay we, where, where are we um, okay verse uh, 26 so to the second and third down to the seventh and after them I, I'm sorry, after them all the woman died you know she had a bed uh, I guess if you, if you have to go through seven sons you know it takes a lot out of you <laughs> in the resurrection therefore of the seven whose wife will she be for they all had her you know, hypotheticals will get you into trouble, of course. <laughs> the thing about the Sadducees is they they didn't believe the resurrection because they basically kept telling the Pharisees, well, yeah, but prove it to us from the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. Prove it to us from there. And they, nobody was really having a good go at it. They They weren't very convincing. So they bring up this scenario, which is this concept we call the Leverite marriage. And I must admit, I never quite knew what that meant, because the Leverite marriage sounds like something to do with the tribe of Levi. But apparently, it just comes from a Latin word back in the day when it was first translated into Latin, L-E-V-I-R, and this is not... For me, the commentators, apparently is Latin for like brother. So it has nothing to do with Levi or the tribe of Levi. It just, they call it the Leviite marriage because it was this concept of um, kind of picking up the slack for your brother. So your brother's family would have some inheritance and so forth. Anyway, they pose this question, which is ironic because they didn't believe in resurrection anyway. Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Well, they they would have probably loved that. (laughs) Like saying, you idiots. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, Have you not read what was said to you by God? So that's kind of, you know, have you not read? That's kind of insulting. I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So now Jesus basically proves the resurrection because God says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he said that to Moses, who lived many, 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 many years after those patriarchs. Well, God says, I am the God. Not I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. Not I was the God of Isaac and so forth. He's not the dead, but of the living. So, not only has he basically proved the resurrection, he's done it from Moses. And it says, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. In other words, what would we say? He blew them away. He blew them away. It's amazing. Now, Nowadays, when there's a really good story, it shows up on social media, right? There are YouTubes made of it. It gets linked to Instagram and Facebook and all that, because everybody loves a good story, right? Everybody loves a good whatever you want to tell. So do you think this crowd were you at the were you around, anywhere around the temple? earlier today, did you hear this Rabbi Jesus, this Galilee guy, did you hear what happened? No? All right, Let me tell you. <laughs> the crowd heard it and they were astonished as it, at his teaching. Now, when you think about Jerusalem, the, the largest city of the area, is going to go Absolutely crazy. Three days from now, three days from now, something big is going to happen. But the crowd right here, they were amazed. I read different places, some people say this is Tuesday, some people say it's Wednesday. And we know that just in a few days, they're going to want to kill this guy that they are amazed with. If you don't think from looking at today's world that there is such a thing as a mob mentality... Has human nature changed all that much? If you don't think an entire city can lose their mind? My apologies to those parts of some of these cities that I'm sure, you know, God has people everywhere and I'm sure they are praying hard. But things can change on the terms of a dime. I mean, a mob mentality, I don't know how you explain it. I'm sure there are people that have tried but we're just, we're just, we're just bad people, you know. Aside from Jesus, we're just really bad. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Can you feel the momentum, kind of building? Verse thirty-four. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And they were thinking, to the Sadducees, it's not so easy, is it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's not so easy. Verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he's got the Sadducees and the Pharisees covered there, the law and the prophets. This whole quizzing, tripping up, testing, all of this effort. One commentator said made the point which I thought was good you know back in the day when the priest selected the lamb that was going to be slaughtered for the day of atonement what was it that was special about that lamb it had to be perfect unblemished perfect in every way how do you know if the lamb is unblemished you look it over You look it over very carefully. One commentator said, over these past chapters, what you've had is the examining of the Lamb who passes every test and is found to be unblemished. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. They they were good Jews. Good in quotation marks. They were looking for Messiah. I mean, for all of their religious jealousy and so forth they were oppressed too they didn't like the Romans in their land any more than anybody else they didn't like having to pay taxes to Caesar they wanted Messiah he said whose son is he and they said to him the son of David a title that Jesus himself took on in his ministry years verse 43 he said to them how is it then that David in the Spirit, in other words, while he was, you know, saying worthwhile, appropriate things, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? And he quotes a psalm, verse 44 The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 45 The heart of this riddle. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. He lays out a riddle, and you got to think he hopes they figure it out. In fact, if he had probably come out, in fact, we know this later, right? When he actually is before the the Council, and they ask him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" and all he says is, "I am," and they freak out and tear their clothes and all that right when he tells them who he is, they can't hear it they can't accept it they they just won't know but in this final act really of compassion, knowing that they're into riddles and you know, that this is the game that they play all the time. He gives them a riddle that if they solve it, they can see him as he really is. He lays it out that the Messiah can't just be div- divine because it's David's son. Has to be a, has to be Human. But yet, if if, if it's David's son, then how could that son be seated at the right hand of God and being called my Lord? And he just uses the evidence that was there all the time, opens their eyes and lets them look at it in a way that they never looked at it before, and gives them a chance to see who he really is. In a way that, that they, probably the only way that he would have been open to it. Just very sneaky, right? It's like if you wanted to pass along some information to a computer hacker who was suspicious of everything else in the world, but if he hid that code into a computer and just so happened that the computer hacker was trying to hack it and discovered that was there... Maybe we would take it more seriously or something. Anyway. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So there we go. He wraps things up with that group of people. And he's going to turn. You know, there's still going to be some references. Um, this next chapter. Uh, he's going to call out judgment on this groups of people and, and so forth. Um, but you can see the momentum building through Holy Week. Uh, and once again, we see just what a mighty God we serve because he pulls in the history, and this has been his plan all along. All right. Cool chapter, verse chapter 22. Any comments? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that... Um, You've just, you just, you just had this whole plan about who you would invite to your feast. And we are so grateful that we got to be on that list. We're so grateful that through your word and through friends and family, through preachers, through various ways, you reached out to each of us with that invitation and we were able to accept it and receive your wedding garment to become your disciples to become part of your family to share in that celebration be part of your church Father open our eyes to those that are interested that want to hear that need to hear the same gospel message that we were blessed with Holy Spirit continue to teach us continue to keep your hand on us and continue to prepare those that we'll encounter and help us step up and give the message they need to hear. We thank you for your son. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.